HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop, a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID 19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Amrit Richmond and Stephen Vigilante, who are friends and CPG gurus who created Indie CPG, a global community of over 500 brand founders building better consumer and lifestyle brands. Amrit is also a CPG consultant working with brands and investors through her agency, CMYK Ventures. Stephen is the growth marketing manager at Olipop and advises brands on fundraising and strategy. Uh, The two of you guys together are like a force, and I'm so glad you're on the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for having us. (laughs) These things are so, it's so hard not in person because you don't know when like someone's kind of handing you the baton. So there's always these like slightly awkward silences, especially with two guests. Um, But we are going to do our best to avoid that. I feel like that's what everyone in the world's been dealing with the last I five know, months. <laughs> I know. Um, and I had a couple of episodes, Matt knows, where like I couldn't like get my microphone to work and I sound like I'm in some sort of basement, you know, under a tarp somewhere, like trying to record the thing. Like this this podcast has had um let's put it this way, I'm appreciative of all the people that are continuing to listen despite the fact that we are not in the studio. Um but Amrit, back to you. Um, I know it, I met you through Stephen, 
Um, and then you helped me with my deck, which was amazing. And when we were getting to know each other a little bit, um, it was right around Expo. And I know your mom has restaurants or a restaurant. And I know she's been a long-term um, entrepreneur. But you're also, you said something I don't remember if you said it to me or if I read it or I heard it, but you said something like the grocery store is your Disneyland. And I think that's when I, you know, fell in love basically (laughs) with you. So tell me a little bit about um, your journey, I guess, how you got into doing what you're doing, um, how you got to be able to work with brands. And for everyone who hasn't listened to this podcast, CPG is Consumer Packaged Goods. Um, Matt, I know we have said the acronym a lot uh, just in the last two minutes. So that's what it means. Amrit, I'm handing you the mic. All right. Uh, So consumer goods have been a a big part of my life since I was a kid. Uh, First through my mom, she had her own frozen food line, has launched multiple restaurants and has developed recipes for, for snack and beverage brands. Um, And when she had a frozen food line, she would bring me along as a 10-year-old to demo her brand at Whole Foods and Expo West. Um, So when I say Whole Foods is like my Disneyland, it was where (laughs) I I hung out as a kid. Um, If my mom was demoing, I would be roaming through the other aisles, looking at her competition, looking at things I wanted to snack on, um, just really roaming the aisles to understand what else was out there um, Mm -hmm. to, to help my mom. And seeing Expo West evolve over 20 years alongside all of the new brands and innovation um, got me really interested in in focusing on CPG, specifically natural CPG brands for my agency. Um, As a consumer, I love plant-based foods and and low-sugar, high-protein snacks, but it's exciting to see so many new kinds of consumers um, experimenting with different flavors and ingredients um, and just in general being open to Um, the delight of trying something new, which is what we're all striving towards, is getting people to try our products. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a consultant, I help brands really understand who their customer is, sometimes talking directly to your customer or working backwards from who we think the customer is, where do they shop, um, what other brands do they like, uh, really trying to understand the customer journey and also the ecosystem around a brand. And for investors um, in CPG companies, I help the investors understand some of these things or support their founders on behalf of the fund. Right. Great. Stephen, um, you have one of those incredible backgrounds that I think brands are looking for where you were an investor. And then in order, I think I've kind of made this up. I don't know if this is real, but like not to just sort of be an investor, but to really understand what the brands and the entrepreneurs and the founders and the teams are experiencing, you switched over to the operating side. Um, And I think that that combination is really your sweet spot, but maybe tell me a little bit about your journey. Yeah, sure. Um, It's funny. I've almost like the opposite of Amrit where I grew up like the pickiest eater ever kind of eating <laughs> standard American diet in New Jersey. I was the kid like, you know, putting like ketchup on pasta and like only ordering chicken fingers at nice right. restaurants, <laughs> driving my parents nuts. And I kind of found my way into consumer and in, earned in the, into the CPG space in college. Um, 
at the I went to Penn State and Penn State has like a student run mutual fund on campus and I kind of got elected into or I got into it as a sophomore and ended up running the consumer sector of the fund as a junior and I like totally fell in love with doing homework and you know reading research reports on these big consumer packaged goods companies that like are so pervasive in our lives that but that most people don't know much about yeah um, and so I kind of came into it from that lens I'm actually really interested in psychology broadly and I took advanced placement psychology and um, in high school and, and again in college and um, consumer to me is like is kind of an exercise especially consumer investing is kind of an exercise in psychology and like what makes people tick and 100%. why would you why would you buy one product over another and so I kind of came into it from that lens not through the lens of health and wellness and then uh, I moved to San Francisco after I graduated college and I was doing investment banking and then joined a company called Circle Up that was like an equity crowdfunding marketplace for early stage consumer brands and actually met a guy uh, who worked there as well, who was like a finance guy, had gone to Harvard, but was vegan. And, um, you know, I had never like met another vegan, <laughs> to be honest. <Right. laughs> and uh, he had me actually, he convinced me to watch a movie called Cowspiracy. Um, and that's what kind of got me on my health and wellness journey. I saw the like impact on the environment that, you know, you know, meat and meat production has. And that's what really pushed me down into this, you know, health and wellness space. And so, um, yeah, it was three, I had three years at Circle Up was a great experience. You know, I always tell people I meet like 20 to 30 founders every week. We raised a, yeah. a fund, a fund while I was there, which was at the time back in 2016, 2017 was one of the first, you know, seed funds specifically right. focused on food, bever- beverage and health and wellness. And, you know, it was kind of one of those things that was right place, right time, you know, 24, 25 years old and had an opportunity to join as one of the first associates on the on the investment team there and just got an amazing experience and it was cool. And uh, I actually helped lead an investment in Miyoko's Kitchen, which was a... Uh, yeah, she was on. Uh, Miyoko's great. She's, yeah, uh, she's amazing. She's amazing. Shining yeah. light in, in the industry. Um, yeah. But that was kind of like a direct result of like watching Cowspiracy and getting into plant-based before it was like everywhere like it is right. now. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I can kind of dive further into the journey if, you, if, if it makes sense. But you know, well, three years ago, I moved out yeah. to L.A. To, to get some operating experience on, on the brand side. And it's been an amazing ride uh, ever since. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit? I mean, Olipop is like sort of they just seem to have or you just seem to have done it all right. I mean, there if you want talk about the psychology like I don't even necessarily love soda and I just want to look at those cans in my refrigerator. Like I, it's just, it's so compelling. And I mean, it's functional, which is great. And I understand, you know, the, the fiber piece is, is like important, but there's just something about the brand too that's just so winning. And I'm just curious, you know, anything you want to tell me about it, any any kind of, North Star that you guys have or, or some sort of underlying, you know, just mantra, yeah. you know? <laughs> People ask this question all the time, uh, to be honest. And it's, it's what's interesting, I, I had actually gone to another startup after I left the investing world um, that had you know, raised 45 plus million dollars and um, went through it in less than eight months and actually went under in June of 2018. And it was a tough experience for me personally. And I kind of got to watch um, something kind of disintegrate from the inside out. And it was very culture driven. It was it was just not a great place to be. It was, there was a lot of issues with the business. And uh, when I met shortly after that folded, I met Ben and David who are working on this prebiotic soda. And it was one of those things for me, like, as I think about, 
you know, from an investment perspective, you know, big categories that are kind of old and stagnant um, and don't really have like a better for you alternative in them uh, are kind of categories that have done really well. You see Halo Top, what they did in ice cream and, um, you know, like a Bonza in pasta and yeah. even what Cauliflower Pizza has done in the frozen pizza space. Um, ben and David were trying to do that uh, in soda and no one had really cracked the code on, on healthy soda. There's, you know, kombucha, sparkling water, tea, juice, lots of innovation in beverage broadly, but I don't think anyone would argue those are like one-for-one one substitutes for a root beer or a cola. And right. you know, cola is 60 billion plus category um, globally. And it's one of those things, if you can like nail a root beer, right, that tastes like a root beer and is truly functionally beneficial, not just less bad for you, but truly right. functionally good for you. It's like, to me, I was like, an, oh, I was like, oh my God, this is like an amazing opportunity and um, kind of came on board as a consultant to help, to help raise some money initially. But um, it has been this kind of crazy rocket ship uh, over the last two years. And I, the, the number one thing I think it kind of comes down to and why a lot of that brand stuff that you can't necessarily put your finger on mm-hmm. you know, that, that you're asking about. And I actually think a lot of it comes down to our team culture. Um, it's, it's literally the best organizational culture of like, not just company I've worked at, but like any <laughs> group or team <laughs> I've, I've ever been on. And everyone is is so on the same page and there's so much cross-functional collaboration. It's, it's incredible. I, I actually wrote a Slack message to the team over the weekend. I was just kind of like, like a thank you. It, it, it's so cool to work on so many different work streams across multiple. Like I work, I feel like I working on projects with like 12 different people internally yeah. and, um, and everyone is amazing. It's, it's awesome. And it's one of those that I've kind of spent some time and, with like as an example, Sir Kensington's. I, I feel like if you've ever talked to anyone who's ever worked had worked at Sir Kensington's, they would like yeah. all they would talk about was how great of a place it was to work. And yep. um, I think that's like one of the primary reasons brands kind of succeed or fail after yeah. they've had some product market fit is is scale. Um, and we're just about twenty people at Olipop now, and like it, the team is just so incredible. It's it's awesome. That's so interesting. I want to get into how you guys met and sort of like how you sort of started this community and why. But I do think it's worth noting, like, one of the things that you said in there, I mean, first of all, you're, I had Scott, um, the founder, and Pat Jamey on the podcast. Um, and they were, they were like mythical. In from Sir Kensington's. Sort of like, like yeah, Scott from Sir Norton. Kensington's. Like, yeah. the, the team just the team. Um, and a lot of that was also Pat's, like the field marketing team were just like, they just lived and breathed getting people to try, you know, the products. But I think the, one of the things you said in there was also about cross-functional, um, which is interesting because we were talking, you know, my team is still, we're, we're six now and we all have, you know, our morning, our morning zoom calls and one of the things that's been actually really interesting and sort of fun about working remotely and having to do everything on Zoom is today the ops team basically gave the marketing team a little bit of lesson in how like UNFI purchase orders work. And, you know, like they didn't know, you know, and, and so and, and the more that the, you know, sort of the, the outward facing team knows about how the sort of the back office works and vice versa, the more you can, I think the richer everything is. And when you have teams where there's like this real bifurcation and almost this like tension between ops and marketing, where the ops are always like the no, that's too much money. And the marketing is always like, but let's just try it because we can't really, you know, that's when I think 
things internally get uncomfortable. Um, do you, is that, is that kind of what you mean by that cross-functional? Yeah, a perfect example too. We have a Monday morning call as well um, every week, and we have a different kind of department runs it each week and kind of mm-hmm. gives an update. And this morning we had like a sales update, and so each kind of regional sales um, uh, rep kind of ran through their region and the wins in each region and the, who the distributors are and where we're consolidating right. things. And it's so interesting. Um, yeah, I think everybody in the business needs to know how all that stuff works. Like, yep. if ops and if ops and sales aren't talking, like you can go out and sell all this product, but if you can't. If you're not like three months ahead of schedule, six months ahead of schedule, buying ingredients and right. getting like the production schedules in line, and then you know, e-commerce now is a is a you know significant portion of our business, and there's ramifications there as we deal with like with with out of stocks, and um, yeah. we want to run like a promotion or a, a, a discount, or we're going to push something like you have to you have to be thinking like three months ahead yeah. basically. To, to and even to, just knowing the why. You know, why is it important that we do well when we you know launch in Kroger, like? Well, we understand basically it's good to do well everywhere, but really why, you know? And then you kind of, you can, you can kind of go down each thread of the business and sort of explain what the positive impact of each thing is and what the potentially negative impact of each thing is, which, you know, I think is fun on a small team. I would imagine it's harder on a bigger team, um, but I think that's a very cool, you know, gist. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there is some like whatever, you talk to people who've kind of been there before and have scaled brands. There's, you know, we're just about twenty people at Olipop, and there's like you know a certain threshold and challenge of scaling from zero to twenty, and then twenty to fifty is like has its own, you know, challenges crunch. that come with yeah. it. Where not everybody can know everything that's going on in the yep. business, and you yeah, know, there's layers and so stuff like that. So that's kind of our 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 next hurdle that we're yeah. gonna cross as a team. So you guys met in 2017. So you were both sort of on your individual journeys. And then, um, Steven, you reached out to Amrit. Um, you guys took a walk at Whole Foods and became friends. I think I Twitter. I think it was a Twitter message. Was yeah. It? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steven reached out after reading some of my CPG content and he, he basically told me, I think we should meet. I, I think we'd have a lot to talk about and we'd become friends. <laughs> and, and um it was really short short and sweet it was just an invitation to connect with somebody that's as passionate about you are um about cpg and of course i said yes and we, right. we quickly became friends um there's a special and- group of us that like literally like go to grocery stores to hang out not just to grocery <laughs> shop by the way and- like i would so want to be in that group i love the grocery store like have always loved the grocery store um, so I'm just inviting myself into your. Crew. I mean, there's a I, there's like it's like a little you know secret society of people <laughs> in grocery stores. But you, you meet like enough people. A lot of people, if you work in this industry, you're probably one of those people, right? Yes. And that's why everyone loves coming to LA because they get to go to Erwan, and Erwan's kind of like the the mecca of the the culty grocery stores. I'd say Erwan and Whole Foods, of course. But uh, I love giving Erwan tours in LA. It's it's, it's, that's, it's always it's right. So you guys basically, um, you have newsletters, you co-host events, you share resources. Um, I think one of the things that, that you do that I think is kind of cool is just like, I, I don't think that I really realized how important and how productive partnerships could be um, really until I'd say even like about a year ago. I really didn't understand the brand partnership thing um, it seemed just like 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't really understand it, but now I, I feel like it's such an important part of building a brand and creating sort of a, a, an ecosystem that you live in where your consumer kind of knows where you live, uh, going back to sort of your psychology part. Um, and I think it, one of the things that it seems like you do is you do sort of say these are like-minded brands or these are brands that you work together with and, and you sort of make connections. Um, but would you would you say the biggest thing is the newsletter? Like how, what would you sort of say is like the sort of the biggest output of NDCPG? I would say the newsletter and Stephen and I do a lot of behind the scenes work um, that we're, we're not doing it to get credit for. We're doing it because we love to support our friends and, and brands we admire. So people may not have heard about it. Like we do office hours a lot. If a friend just wants to jam on something, maybe they want feedback on their pitch deck or they're launching in a new city and they want to know who in our collective network um, they could talk to. Or um, there's, there's usually some, some kind of goal um, with someone reaching out to us within this community and we're always happy to help. And if we don't have the answer, we'll, we'll admit that and we'll say, you should actually talk to this person right. um, because they did that functionality at, at this other brand that they were at or they consult on this or they only invest in blank. Um, so Stephen and I play switchboard operator a lot, just making sure that people are getting to the source of what they need. Right. Um, and building community is a great way to scale that effort. So if we host a video chat, um, we did one with a sales leader a few months ago, um, and we were able to get 20 founders on there just to talk privately about hiring their first um, chief sales officer. And there isn't um, a lot of other opportunity for those people to meet each other, but also for the mentor to to give back in a setting where he feels like he's contributing something too, and that scales his t- scales everybody's time. Um, so things things like that, um, we hope to do more of, um, especially while we can't meet in person as much. Yeah. Um, and the the long term goal with all of these resources and content that we produce for NDCPG is to to give the next generation of sustainable food and beverage brands the same kind of resources they might get from a fund post investment. Right. Um, but there are a lot of people that um, don't have access to venture-backed resources mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, it's totally acceptable to never raise money for your business, um, but you still need to find right. um, peers and, and mentors and collaborators and vetted agencies and all these little decisions that um, founders like Allison think about every day. We hope to, to catalog some of that to, to help you build faster and more thoughtfully. Yeah, I, I kind of call it like connecting the dots. Like when you start a food or beverage company, there's a, just a host of people that you kind of need to know who they are to 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 work your way through the system. And when you're new, it, it's it's when you're a new founder, it's like challenging, right? There's it's this is not an industry where like uh, candidly, like you can Google a lot of stuff. It's like a lot of right. you got to talk to people and figure out how they've ha- hacked their way through, you know, a UNFI contract or um, yeah. you know, getting in front of like Nosh and Bevnet and stuff like that. And yeah. I've just always kind of been hardwired like that. I, 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 when I was on the investing side, I'd always try to go out of my way. I worked a lot with the portfolio companies after we invested to like connecting right. them to various industry partners and. You know, we'd have a direct line into like this head snack buyer at Starbucks, as an example, and kind of yep. making intros like intros like that. And uh, Ombre's the same way. We're just kind of hardwired to help people out and go above and beyond. And 
I love it. You're like tour guides. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I off, I feel like I've said this before, but I feel like starting the sauce company just like I landed in a foreign country. I was sort of like dropped in from a plane and kind of landed in the middle of some sort of square and everyone was speaking a language I didn't get and there were all these different dialects because by the way one acronym means something at one store but a totally different acronym <laughs> at another store and you're like you're not only learning like one language you're learning all these dialects um and you don't i mean i didn't know what a promo was you know and why did you have to go on promotion doesn't that make it look like you need to go on sale that was you know which is you just don't know um so you guys are sort of translators and tour guides um and i, I for me it's been great getting to know you okay we're going to take a quick break when we come back, we're going to talk about all of the mistakes that you've seen um, and all of the, you know, sort of ways to, uh, I think, mitigate and avoid those mistakes. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop. Bisop is a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. Berry Bisop honors and preserves the traditional recipe while adding their own twist. Berry Bisop teas are fused with organic fruit. They're all natural, caffeine-free, ethically sourced, and free from artificial coloring or any other chemicals. As for taste, they're chilled and refreshing with a hint of both sweetness and tartness. Drink them alone or mix them with seltzer or cocktails. Learn more at berrybisop.com. That's berry, B-I-S-S-A-P.com. I'm back with Steven and Amrit from IndieCPG. Okay, so you guys have had a lot of ex- uh, exposure and a lot of experience to um, brands doing it well, brands not doing it so well, teams. Um, I would say I'd like from each of you one to three common mistakes that you feel like you are like, oh, I wish someone had just told them this. Um, Amrit, let's start with you. Some misconceptions that I see in the industry um, are one, that plant-based food isn't just for vegans and vegetarians anymore. And if, if you're, you're thinking about investing in that space or building a company in that space, um, your total addressable market is anybody that, that is looking for those flavor profiles or high, high protein. It, it's not necessarily about sustainability or, um, you know, other reasons why someone might eat a veggie burger, but it's, it's permeated into pop culture. It's at fast food restaurants everywhere. So if you're, if you're looking at an opportunity in that space, I, I wouldn't consider it niche anymore. Um, at the same time, it, it still takes storytelling to make sure that people understand what they're eating. Um, but I see that as one of the biggest CPG opportunities in the next couple of years. Um, second misconception um, from an investor lens is that bootstrap brands couldn't raise money at the seed stage. Um, you mean I, people think if someone's bootstrapped, that means that they couldn't raise money? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, I am a, a big advocate for doing what's best for your brand, not what's best for your friends. And um, sometimes that's growing at your own pace or um, using your customers as your investor. And I think it's great if someone can can get the traction that they 
that they need to sustain the business without raising. Um, but from an investor lens, I hope that anybody listening will will look at that brand and say, wow, they did this much without raising money. Imagine what they could do with an investment from my firm. Um, I will say that when I was fundraising for my seed round last summer, I was being compared, not by angels and individuals, but when I did meet the occasional VC fund, I was being compared to pre-launch companies that had a good idea, maybe some groovy packaging that they had spent a lot of money on, um, but didn't have any sales. And it was really frustrating, I have to say. It kind of steered me away. I decided not to go really with funds. I was too early probably anyway, and I wasn't looking for enough money, but it was definitely, it kind of kept coming up and I didn't understand because it felt so apples to oranges and a bunch of those pre, you know, sort of pre-revenue companies all raised money. Um, And there was a part of me, I have to say, that kind of felt like maybe I missed the boat and I should have done it before because it was a little harder because once you have sales, someone's like, why was October, you know, two weeks behind, like, you know, a little lower than it should. There was like more to pick at. Yeah. Um, it's a really and, weird function. It's a really weird dynamic, but it's a hundred percent real. <laughs> it is right. It's like you can sell a dream, but you know, the reality is, is that very few things just go straight up, 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 right? Especially when they're, you know, the, there's an OI. And so someone buys product, you know, they'll buy a lot in July and they'll go through it in August. And August won't be as big of a sales month. It's not necessarily that your sales are down. Um, but have you, so you, Stephen, you've seen that dynamic too. Yeah, and I, especially even, I mean, you see it on both sides of food and beverage, but it, the first, the first like couple million of revenue are so like, you get a big PO in December versus January could like shift your entire revenue year. mix for the yeah. year, right? And so like I think extrapolating, trying to extrapolate too much from the first chunk, it, it, there's also just like you, you could be the wrong decision to go into a retailer too early just just to hit a number. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's different yeah. ways you can move things around. That I I kind of come from the school of like to have a thesis on the category and the team and you know, what the opportunity looks like and like make an investment kind of based on that versus like some of these, you know, revenue numbers. And a lot of them are functions of, of course you can grow faster if you raise money before you launch. You have like people on your team and it's like, what you can be doing? And so, um, you know, I have a a friend who just closed like a million dollar seed round and he's kind of bootstrapped and doing everything by himself. And it's like super impressive what he's accomplished by himself. But then like investors are like knocking him for not growing fast enough. Right, right, exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's just kind of like the way the system works. I think it's starting to shift a little bit. You have more, there's been a lot of like M&A activity the last five years. So the investor landscape is shifting a little bit more towards kind of former operators or entrepreneurs who've, who sold businesses. And I think they are, right. think more like, you know, the have a thesis and understand where you can add value versus just purely being like a numbers driven investor. Right. And maybe get to, you know, profitability as opposed to just like, you know, opening doors, which seems like that was a a thing for a while. Okay. Amrit, sorry. Continue. Number three. (laughs) Um, My. Is over indexing on packaging and pre-launch branding and not putting enough focus on your product development, um, consumer engagement, acquiring customers through partnerships. Um, Stephen and I talk a lot about little things that brands can do when you're on 
Um, when you're on a budget, maybe you just launched, you can um, collaborate on all kinds of things digitally to, to share each other's newsletter lists or Instagram or whatnot. Um, you don't have to go right to, to ads if you're, you're super early. Right. Um, so I think focusing on your product and your path to your position in the market is a better use of time and, and working capital than spending a, th- a third or half of what you've, you've raised from, um, from your seed round on the, the packaging and not the product. Yeah. If your product is good, um, you, your product could be in a paper bag and yeah. people would, would love it. Um, so I, I really push uh, companies to, to, to focus on the core of your product and then you can refresh your packaging um, when you have traction, but yeah. it would, it's a waste of everybody's time to, um, to, to spend a large portion on, on your, of your budget on, um, things that don't lead to sales. Um, yeah. but at, think, at the same, yeah. no, I mean, I've, I've now met three or four brands that had to completely scrap those, uh, designs and those names and those uh, everything for one reason or another, um, after they spent a good chunk of money on them. Um, and every one of them felt pretty nauseous about it. So that's a very good point. <laughs> if you go all the way back, if you go all the way back on the Alipop Instagram two and a half years ago, you'll see there was actually a brand, a, a packaging pre the packaging that we have now, um, that Ben and David had, you know, did some focus groups with pre-launch and it just didn't resonate with people right and uh, it's pretty interesting and a lot of people don't know about that but i love it uh, did you see the oatly article last week there was like an oatly article going around and it showed oatly's original packaging oh yeah um, that's crazy. which was pretty hard <laughs> like and also and red, i mean right? the rx guys i mean their their packaging is iconic and there was a completely different package um for the first couple of years so um product 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 and know your consumer and know your category. Um, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Do you have another one or yeah? No, I, that those would be my top three. But just to add to that, uh, Stephen and and Allison and I we're all huge branding and packaging nerds. We love good packaging, bright colors, um, things that stand out on the shelf. But you can still stand out on the shelf and preserve your capital for when you're going to need it for something else. Totally. Um, and I think it's most important in packaging to make sure that people understand what what they're buying, especially if it has a, an ingredient that's new to them or they're they're on a special diet. As long as people can um, can understand what's inside of the package, um, yeah. it doesn't matter if it's pretty enough to be posted on Instagram and when you, know, you launch. To, to piggyback on that, so. You know, I sort of tell this like when I, you know, climbed 18 mountains to get to school, sort of like this is like I've created this like folklore that I basically, which is true, but we had we had our cooking school logo. And then I was giving a farmer's market tour and met this woman on the tour who was a graphic designer. And I was like, oh, hey, we're thinking about putting sauces in pouches. Can you take our logo and kind of jerry rig it to fit on a pouch and it was you know a couple hundred dollars and that's how we we've never spent um more than that on 
logo or, you know, packaging or anything. And to be fair, I've gotten pushback from a couple of retailers. It looks a little too homemade. I've gotten pushback from investors. It doesn't quite look sort of grown up enough. I've definitely gotten the message that um, we do need a refresh, you know, which, which I think will happen, you know, in a year or so. But the thing about what's so much fun when you haven't spent a ton of money on your packaging is that you're very open to playing around and trying different things. So we didn't have, we just had in our first iteration of the pouch, it just said cook with confidence. It didn't say sauce or marinade or dressing. We just kind of assumed that people would know what it is, which is, you know, never assume that a consumer understands anything just because you it makes perfect sense to you, um, especially because we were putting these pouches in the middle of, you know, the dairy set and no one had any clue what they were. It's kind of amazing that actually as many people did understand what they were, but you know, every six to eight months or so we kind of futz around and like try different things on the front, try different things on the back. And if you had spent a ton of money on some sort of, you know, gift from the, you know, marketing gods, you wouldn't feel as comfortable doing that. And I think you'd miss out on a lot of important learnings early on in your, in your life, you know, as, as a brand. So I think that's a really good point. Stephen, what about you? Do you have um, three, you know, one to three sort of things that you would like founders not to mess up? Yeah, the first thing that I find myself talking to or talking about the most I feel like is just price point and despite all these things we talk about and branding and packaging like price is still the <laughs> driver of yeah. consumer decision making in, in the grocery store and it this is a it's it's inherently like the, you have some cognitive or I have some cognitive dissonance here because a lot of like new better for you products are like inherently more expensive right whether it's the production yeah. process the better ingredients um, and then the flip side says like to do the most kind of like good to have the highest impact in theory you want to kind of like grow as big as possible while preserving like your ingredient integrity and like what you stand for as a brand um but the reality of the situation is kind of the people who need the most help from a health perspective often have you know fall on the lower end of the in of the uh the income of the income bands and so i talk about this with respect to olipop a lot and that we're at a $2, kind of $2.49 price point in general. Um, we flex up to like $3 maybe in New York, down to two twenty nine, you know, right. in, in other accounts. But we're like one of the cheapest functional beverages in any Better For You beverage set. Most functional beverages are three forty nine to four ninety nine, right. And you go, like, well, we're going after soda, right? And like a diet, you can get a Diet Coke for like 50 cents to a dollar almost right. anywhere. And so, you know, it's tough. You're, it's tough to make the argument that someone who's, drinking soda kind of because they need to from a financial perspective are going to switch to like a four ninety nine kombucha right. whereas you know we're two forty nine maybe we'll promote down to two for four um that's a bit you know a bit more attainable it's still more than double the price right i, I I'm, right. it's not lost on me but price is so important and we olipop uh, david and ben elected to not go organic on it because we have some kind of yep. obscure ingredients and the prebiotics and some of the botanicals like if we were sourcing those you know, organic, yep. we'd be a $5 price point. And then 
we're not helping any of the people. Who, right. You know, we did, we did a similar, um, I mean, we, we didn't go organic one because we have a couple of farmers like our, you know, our pepper farmer in Spain is not getting certified USDA, like just not going to go through that process. Um, but there were other things that, you know, there, there's no reason why a non GMO version of that particular ingredient is not, just as good as the organic capital O version. Um, but that organic capital O version can be four to five times the price. So if we only chose all organic ingredients, um, our sauces would be, you know, $15, $16, which is obviously not, not going to work on a grocery store shelf ever. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know, tell me, I think the consumer is starting to understand that capital O organic doesn't necessarily mean um, everything that that they want it to be. I think they understand non-GMO a little bit better. I think they understand sourcing, you know, and focus on quality and integrity um, more than they did. Do you guys have a thought on that? Uh, I feel like that's an awkward question, to be honest. I, 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 as I think about like conventional retail, broadly speaking, I think a lot of this stuff, again, it's some of these are, are like nice to haves, but like price matters the most. Right. Uh, that's interesting. In the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Amrit, what about your perspective? I agree with Stephen that price matters. Um, right now I'm, I'm doing a consumer study for a candy brand and sustainability and organic has come up a lot because it matters to the client. And what I'm hearing from consumers is um, partly in response to coronavirus, but just in general for their budget, um, they're leaning towards the, the natural or non-GMO version versus organic um, because they're, they're priced out of organic yeah. right now. Um, but if it, they're at a store that they trust, like a Whole Foods or an Air One or their, their local natural grocery store, they're more than happy to buy the conventional version because they know that that's still a better tomato than what you would find at a big box store. Right, yep. Um, so the, the grocer has a, a really important trust layer with all of our products um, because their, their stamp of approval is, is helping people decide what to buy right now for their families to stay healthy um, while maintaining their budget. Um, I think some families um, are spending a, a little bit less on organic so that they can stock up on other items or yeah. kind of just triaging what what's the most important right to to buy organic um yeah but of, of course people care people still care about it but there's so many layers to what organic means or, or say right. fruits and vegetables that um i think people have loosened up a little bit about what yeah. that means to them. Let's talk a little bit because you mentioned the grocery store. Um, I think Amrit and I have talked a lot about how we're, we're grocery store believers, even with COVID. Um, you know, I think a lot of grocery stores, there's, there's a lot of research coming out that a lot of grocery stores are seeing new customers come in that, that are completely new to them People are trying things at the grocery level and they're sticking. 
Um, it's not like everyone's only buying Kraft mac and cheese and potatoes. There, people are actually trying new brands. It's kind of an interesting time in a way. Um, I mean, definitely an interesting time, but more positive, I think, for emerging brands than maybe I had anticipated. Um, but I know, Stephen, you're also, you know, we, we've also talked about you can't just be, you know, grocery, you've got to have direct to consumer, you're probably going to have to have Amazon. Like, I think we all have gotten the other lesson from COVID that you have to be in every possible channel. Um, what yeah, are your I, thoughts? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And, okay. Um, it's probably, my opinions have probably changed in the last six months. I would have said maybe a year ago, like you really need to start one place and focus and own it. And um, we, you know, Olipop, we launched in grocery, call it September of 2018. And we didn't launch even any sort of website until August of 19. And then didn't really start focusing on the e-com until like middle of February this year, which was just right. like super fortuitous timing. But right. what we've kind of seen as, you know, obviously some of this, totally accelerated by what's happened with COVID. But, um, you know, we started running ads in February, kind of took us like a month or so to figure out like copy and what type of content works and, you know, all that jazz. And then kind of middle of March, we made some pricing changes uh, on the site and started offering free shipping and just kind of things just kind of took off. But um, what I've kind of learned in the last few months is like how important in this is another I think people talk about how expensive Facebook and Instagram ads are. Like, yeah, for sure, they've gotten more expensive. But there's so many more people around the country who've just seen our brand now because yeah. we've been running ads for four months or five yeah. months. And you know, I get from people all the time, like, I see your brand everywhere, whether it's, like, all, you yeah. know, people in L.A. who see it in stores, people in New York, as we just launched we just launched there about six weeks ago. But, you know, we were geo-targeting ads in New York before we even had product there. And we had, you know, launched with By Chloe in New York. And so we've kind of had this, like, weirdly you know, effective omni-channel strategy between grocery and some like food service, retail, restaurant, and now e-com where, you know, we did this big, you know, National Sprouts launch um, in the end of May and it's gone you know, exceedingly well, like far surpassed our expectations or the expectations that, that Sprouts had set for us. And, That's always good. Um, <laughs> it's good, of course. And there's like, you know, we ran, a, we, did, we ran a promo, we launched a new flavor with them, which was, which was hugely important. People, it was the only place they could get it was in the stores, but I, would have to argue that like so many more people even just had seen our brand outside of California and and the PAC Northwest because of ads. It's, it's definitely a a part of the equation. And, and then as you kind of move into e-com and just getting back to what you were saying about like kind of key call outs and watch outs, like I had had no idea how important customer service was. I'd never been in a customer service function. I'd never really understood what that meant. And, um, you know, we've kind of turned it into, I kind of view it as a marketing channel for us on the e-commerce side. Totally. If anyone takes the time to write you an email or comment on a Facebook ad, whether it's about complaining about price point or, you know, something went wrong in the shipping experience. Like if someone cares enough to, to let you know, like you want to make sure you take care of them, right? In, in one way yep. or another. Um, well, so they, because mean, those people are going to also let people know I mean, this I learned in brick and mortar very early. You know, the people that were like, my coffee is too hot, my coffee is too cold. Like, those are also the people that will tell their friends, like, you've got to go to this place for coffee. Because they, right. they, they, they're they doing that because they, I mean, unless they're just like a cranky person. But for the most part, like, converting those people into voices that are amplifying you, um, they're they're easily converted. You know, because they, totally. they, they've already established the fact that they kind of care. 
which is more than most people do. You know, you're right. Taking the time to write you guys a DM or comment or email or whatever. Um, it's such a great opportunity to really convert that person into like a, a you know, an ambassador. Yeah. And we, we, we just brought on um, Eli Weiss, who was at, at Nugs uh, running their customer service team. And he's just like incredible. And he's like the most empathetic person I've ever met. And just mm-hmm. so above and beyond. And I think treating customer service really as a marketing channel is critical, uh, yeah. especially for all these like, so many new brands who hadn't sold online until, you know, March or April and now have like significant e-commerce businesses and, um, you know, not being caught flat footed when it comes to customer service. I think a lot of brands just don't have the bandwidth and they just, you know, let Instagram comments and Facebook comments and even emails just kind of fall through the cracks and yeah. I totally understand like people have different you know amounts of resources and some people just don't have resources to deal with this but for those that do I, I would treat customer services like one well, of the most important things. A I think it's a good marketing channel B I think it's great research you know if if you yeah. look at you know 10 of the comments in the past month and they are all kind of pointing toward the similar thing you know you might have something that you need to to address you know, or if there is a question that keeps coming up, that needs to go in your FAQs, you know, and it, it's, it, I think a lot of this, and we, I've talked to a couple guests about this, like, I think, I think a lot of brands, and I don't know, it's ironic in a way, but I think a lot of brands, they, they're so in love with their own product that it's very hard for them to hear whether it's an investor, a buyer, a consumer, a service provider, anything challenging. Um, and they and they almost get this like defensive, like, well, they don't get it, or they're just a pain in the neck, or they. And the more that you can kind of open yourself up to all of that, you know, reasonably. Um, the better because you're just getting so much information and information is what you need. I mean, Amrit, you talk about this a lot. Like you need to know why consumers love your product. You need to know number reason why one, two, and three. And, and it can't be why you love your product. You have to do the research to figure out what they love about it. And, and speaking of that, like, what do you think is the best way for like a brand like ours where we're not doing a big focus group and we're not spending a lot of money on a consultant? Like, is it just an Instagram story? Why do you love us? Like, what, what is the best sort of way to get that information? And, what, and, and how have you sort of seen brands use that information well? Sure. Um, so I would say a, a brand at your, your stage or thinking about research for the first time I would strive to talk to at least one customer a day on the phone that's not a customer service related issue, but just a a 15 to 20 minute conversation with them. Um, Offer them a gift card or an envelope of face value coupons to talk to you um, and just hear how they discovered your brand. Um, What other brands are they using alongside of yours? what do they dislike about your brand? Um, yeah. I would hope that it would be easier for you to hear what someone dislikes when you ask them directly yeah. versus an isolated customer service issue. And maybe someone didn't understand how to use your product and that's why they gave it a bad review. Um, so if, if you keep hearing, oh, I don't know how to... Um, use it. I, I, yeah, I don't know how to use this product or um, you know, I, I took two of your vitamins and I didn't feel anything, but you actually needed to take four, but it, right. that wasn't clear and you know the font wasn't big enough or whatnot. So if you, you start to hear people's pain points, whether or not they're isolated 
situations, um, you can start to to put those in a spreadsheet and, and kind of categorize them. Like what, I think that's a great idea. What, what are we hearing? <laughs> um, I love that. <laughs> and um, when, you, when you get a new customer or you see that someone has purchased more than a few times, just have, have your team reach out to them. Flag those yep. people. Um, if someone hasn't made a purchase in six months directly from your website, reach out to those people as well and say, we'd just like to get to know you um, and we're happy to reward you for, for your time. It doesn't have to be a formal survey. It can, um, can really help your team get to know the customer. You can rotate who takes those calls. You can record them anonymously for training purposes um, so that everyone on your team knows who your customer is, not just the marketing and R&D yeah. department. I think that's um, great advice. Steven? I, I monitor all of our Shopify orders, and whenever I see something come in for more than like $200, I'll usually send them a personal email and just thank them for supporting us. And they don't always jump on the phone, but you can get a lot of information just out of a couple of emails. Like, hey, where'd you find us? Like, there's a real mm-hmm. guy in Indiana who's like ordered, I don't know, I think he had ordered he really likes it. like $800 yeah. of product within like the first month of his first order. Oh my like, gosh. Who is this guy? He's like the coolest guy ever. He's like a military veteran, two young girls, like obsessed with Olipop. He's like now bringing our product into the VA, like the Veterans Association in, in right. Indianapolis. And it's like, you, you hear these amazing stories and it's, it's awesome. And, um, you know, there are also people you can get like product feedback on from, right? Like, if, oh, well, I want this new flavor. What do you think of this name versus that name? Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, yeah. I love all that. Okay, guys, thank you so much, um, so much. Usually I'd be like, what's your best advice? But you've given so much advice that we don't need to do that. Steven, thank you. Amrit, thank you. Um, Matt, thank you for being the best engineer. Um, and thank all of you guys for listening. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.